but if you be nice to people and you can surround yourself with you know great people in the industry and meet a lot of people learn as much as you can off everybody i mean you know everybody from the kitchen border to a front of house person learn from your own mum learn from your friends learn from um books and things um and sort of become that sort of wealth of knowledge and and hopefully you know when you sort of start to mature a bit as a chef you'll find that instead of asking everybody all these questions you're the one that everybody's asking the questions of and um, <laughs> that's when you realize you've become a leader today on dirty linen we are talking to someone about whom there is a certain symmetry uh, for dirty linen people might remember that we kicked off this podcast with a long and in-depth chat with Alla Wolf Tasker from Country Victoria's Lake House. Today we are talking to Chef Jake Nicholson, who I think I first heard about when he was working with Alla Wolf Tasker at that venerable establishment in Dalesford. Jake has gone on to work at many different restaurants and he now finds himself up in Brisbane, where he is the executive chef of the Ganem Group, which has restaurants all around Brisbane and some in Melbourne as well. Jake, welcome to the show. And do you still think back to your time with Alla Wolf Tasker as an important time in your career? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Danny. Um, yeah, working with Alla, you know, she was kind of like my culinary mother. So um, everything I sort of learned, you know, came from her and, you know, it was certainly a good base to, to start learning from. Yeah, she's a, she's a powerhouse and, you know, really taken country Victoria to new places of course you know Lake House you know as every restaurant in Victoria did has gone through some super hard times through 2020 and our long lockdown what was it like for you being up in Brisbane having a little bit of an easier time of it COVID wise but looking back at people that you knew and loved down here in Victoria um yeah it was definitely challenging I mean you know, we sort of had our own fair share of things going on up here, but it was nothing compared to what Melbourne was sort of faced with. So I kind of laid a bit low during that time and, you know, tried not to post too many things on social media and things like that because it was just sort of heartbreaking seeing what the restaurants were going through and, you know, my friends and just sort of trying to empathise with, you know, how hard it must have been. So, um, yeah, I just you know, tried to hopefully give as much support as I could at the time and just make sure that my thoughts were with all my friends and stuff down south. Mm. I actually thought of you when we heard uh, over the weekend that Perth was going into what hopefully will be a short, sharp lockdown. It's, it seems to be going well. There are zero new cases uh, when we're speaking today on Monday. Uh, Brisbane went through its own short, sharp lockdown. Can you talk us through that time? And do you have any, I don't know, words of wisdom or mindset advice for those in WA who are going through something similar? Well, I mean, it sort of catches you off guard, really. I mean, we were always sort of prepared for a, a lockdown happening, but, you know, we were kind of smooth sailing up here, so it was very unexpected. Um, in fact, during the Christmas break, I was down seeing my family in Warrnambool, so I sort of was uh, running the gauntlet a little bit. I had flights booked um, towards the end of December, so I, would, I was just keeping an eye on the numbers in, you know, the number of cases in Victoria and I was getting a bit concerned about having to quarantine on the way back home but Ooh. it um, came from the other end um, <laughs> so I actually flew back into the lockdown um, on the the Friday so 
I think, you know, it really did catch us unaware. We kind of, I guess we thought we were um, out of the weeds, so to speak. Um, we, I guess we were being very cautious about the amount of produce we had on hand and, you know, the amount of ordering we were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, we were being very optimistic and also, you know, had plans to sort of come out of it the other side and, and business was very, you know, bouncing back quite strong. So we were confident and I just didn't really expect it. And I imagine that, you know, in WA, uh, Perth, they probably didn't expect this either. So it is a bit of a punch in the guts because, you know, you, you certainly do, again, sort of rely on that weekend trade and um, to hear that you're about to go into lockdown. I mean, there's the only real things that you can do is limit that amount of stock that's um, coming in. And of course, you're going to lose all of those bookings. So, um, you know, it, it, it is a costly exercise. I think, you know, on the, I guess the, the positive note, a lot of the suppliers were ready for that type of thing to happen. So, you know, they were already calling us and, you know, cancelling the orders and, you know, making sort of alternative arrangements to to move stock around. So, you know, on one hand, you've got, you're staring down the barrel of a lot of food wastage and, and also a lot of um, guests sort of cancelling. And especially if you're a wedding venue, I mean, I feel terribly mm. for those people who did try and get functions and, and weddings happening because, you know, we had a whole, you know, virtually a whole summer where those celebrations hadn't happened. So those people probably, you know, were um, hit hit from the side again with having to cancel those bookings and, and make alternate plans to those um, sort of things that were going to be happening, events and, and weddings and birthdays and all that type of thing. So, yeah, a very challenging time. Mm, yeah, it is really challenging. It's interesting to hear you talk about suppliers. I think the, the theme for the this couple of weeks on Dirty Linen is looking back and looking forward. And I wanted to talk to you with that in mind because I know that you reopened your restaurants in the middle of the year with quite a few ideas about how to do things differently. And I know that suppliers were one part of that, but similarly you had different ideas about staffing and, and managing your large team. Can you talk us through some of those things? Yeah, so as we peeled back to reopening again, we kind of uh, looked into our suppliers and things and we kind of did things a little bit differently. We were just really keeping an eye on how much food we were ordering and um, we were just more or less ordering food on a day-to-day -day basis. So we'd, we'd order in a small amount of money, we'd, we'd get a small, small amount of money back in and then pay, pay those bills. So rather than sort of, you know, loading the fridges and that sort of thing, um, we just did it little bit by little bit. And we uh, obviously had quite a few uh, people on visas that didn't have entitlements to the JobKeeper. So we made sure that we were looking after those people and, and kind of had them back on the books as fast as we could. And um, of course, most of the people, the full-time staff members sort of came back and, and worked their hours sort of pro rata. So it was a, a challenging situation because it sort of meant the apprentices were, you know, doing their full-time hours, but then um, the senior chefs, you know, some of them were working 15 hours and 10 hours a week. So. It kind of swapped things around. It was kind of like, you know, the apprentices were the ones running the kitchens and, um, you know, more of the senior chefs were doing less hours. Although 
most of us sort of dug our heels in and, and ended up sort of working whatever we had to do just to make sure that the businesses kept on running. So, I mean, it, it really did give us a big opportunity to revisit exactly what we were doing in terms of, um, you know, our outgoings and our costs and, you know, just to making sure that we sort of knew exactly where the money was going and, and what little money we kind of had to sort of operate the business businesses on. We were just making sure that we, you know, just use that wisely. Um, you know, we looked into our suppliers, we looked into the products we were using and also our menu offerings and just made sure that we were sort of running a tight ship in that essence. Um, you know, I think as you get more confident with the businesses sort of reopening, um, you know, you, you sort of go out to um, offer, you know, six or seven entrees and six and seven and eight main courses, but you have to be very, very smart about, you know, some restaurants are offering just sort of set menus and some restaurants are doing, you know, continuing to do the takeaway. For us, we, you know, pulled off an entree and a main here and there and just made sure that, you know, our food wastage was under control and our spend was really, um, you know, down to exactly what, what we needed to do rather than um, being excessive and sort of being a bit free-handed with things. Mm. And I remember talking to you a while back about the way that you communicated with your staff. Like, can you just talk about that process and how you sort of made sure that everyone was doing okay? Well, I think that each one of the staff members, you know, needed to be dealt with in, in, in a different sort of manner. So I guess, you know, a good example of that would be, um, you know, perhaps someone's partner had lost their job in, in another field and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a mother of two who was normally just working a bit of part-time hours to sort of, you know, help out in the kitchen or, or stay interested was all of a sudden sort of having to be the breadwinner. Um, so, you know, they didn't have time to stay at home with their kids and, and things like that. And of course, you know, the, the schools were sending the children home and stuff. So, you know, there was added pressures on to each person individually. I think, you know, when you're up in Brisbane, a lot of young chefs, they want to travel down south and head to Melbourne or they have aspirations to move and travel overseas. So when you sort of say, well, no, you can't, go and do those things you knock the wind out of people a little bit and I think that for me it was really important to you know sort of re reiterate that things were going to be okay and that you know we didn't need to put so much pressure on ourselves and we just needed to you know look after each other and try and be as as stable as we possibly could so I did spend a lot of my time you know, looking at each individual person and their different situations and trying to make sure that, you know, we were doing everything we can to to ensure that, you know, things were going to be okay and that um, we would do everything we could to make sure that they still were comfortable and had security in their jobs. Mm. And I suppose, yeah, as you mentioned, there is that sort of career progression that I suppose you're always sort of mentoring young staff and giving them a sense of what they can do in your business and perhaps, you know, interstate or overseas. But, of course, people can't, you know, do head to London and do a couple of years over there, you know, that's tread that well-trodden path that so many chefs have done. Do you find other ways to extend those people and perhaps try to give them that experience that they might get overseas without them being able to go there? Yeah, so a lot of young chefs, well, I have a few people in my team that have aspirations to, 
you know, travel overseas and get experience in, in Europe or America and things like that. And you kind of only have a short window, you know, from when you qualify up until you're about 30 when you kind of, you know, have those those visa entitlements. So, you know, when they sort of lock down a bit and I have to, you know, sort of try and make sure I can offer something that, um, you know, is going to be relevant to them and also, you know, give them sort of sense of direction and, and um, I guess a lot of the times you don't really understand how that's going to, to work. I mean, you know, a lot of us travelled overseas when we were younger and we got that experience, but I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think in Australia now we've had a, a lot of talented chefs. We have, you know, a very strong industry where you can learn those skills and, um, you know, not leaving home isn't necessarily the worst thing that can happen. So I have a lot of good chefs in our team and we bring a lot of experience and knowledge to the to the game and I think that you know if you if you're stuck working with those in these type of restaurants then you, it, things are going to be okay what what kinds of things uh, can you put, give me as, as examples of you know something that someone might think they needed to go to to London or New York for but that you can actually offer them in Brisbane is it is it like a, a, a like a hard skill like how to you know I don't know like clean a rabbit rack or is it just is it a is it the scale of a restaurant is it um is it being closer to a different type of produce like what kinds of things do you think people feel like they're missing out on it and what do you can you like specifically do to help them feel like they're still learning and growing as chefs well I think that you know my my experience comes from being in London for um four or five years I think that the way I see it is that the brigades over there are really quite well respected and of course you know we know that the chefs have great names and the Michelin star is quite a you know prestigious award so to get that type of name on your resume is is, you know I guess seems paramount to a young chef um you know it's certainly where I picked up a lot of my skills and you know it's you, you do the hard yards over there and and come back and perhaps you have a certain set of skills that you can't necessarily gain in Australia I mean, that's kind of the way you see things. So, um, you know, I think that you, you're using ingredients perhaps that we don't see in Australia, filleting certain fish like, you know, turbot and halibut and, you know, beautiful monkfish, but also the game, um, you know, like things like grouse and um, things like that and, and pigeons and, and stuff like that, as well as, um, you know, amazing fruit and vegetables coming in from France and just, you know, it's, it's, it's a different sort of um, skill set, I guess, or a different set of um, circumstances you put in, but it just, it, it gives you another element of experience. But I think that, you know, the, you're just, you're rubbing shoulders with people who share a, a passion and have a certain, um, you know, prestige about what they do. And that, that is something that we have in Australia too now because we have a lot of passionate chefs and we have a lot of people that, you know, go away and bring those skills back into the industry. And I think that anything that you can learn overseas now, you can learn right here on your own doorstep. And that's probably something to keep in mind because, mm. um, you know, we do have a lot of great chefs and, and both, you know, front and back of house as well. So, um yeah, yeah I think... it's interesting. It's interesting. It's like it makes me think of the 
Tourism Australia campaigns where it's like, you don't, you know, don't worry, you've got it all in your own backyard. There are so many great destinations in Australia from a travel and tourism point of view, but perhaps that is something like we can really look on all the things we do in a hospitality sense with a similar pride and think we don't have to have that, that perhaps it's a bit of a cultural cringe where you feel like you've got to go somewhere else to get the best of the best. Um, perhaps we do need to uh, have a new appreciation for the things that we can do here. Yeah, and I think that, you know, everybody's eager to, you know, learn the next thing. I always try and tell the young chefs in my kitchen to not climb ladders before you're ready. I think that a lot of the time people kind of, you know, they become qualified and they want to become a chef to party and, you know, as quick as possible they want to be a sous chef and then a head chef. So, you know, when they get to 25, 26, they, you know, if they're not head chef, they think they're doing the wrong thing. So... You know, for me, I just try and, uh, me personally, I wasn't a sous chef until I was at least 26. Now, I might have been a little bit behind everybody else, but I had an opportunity to do my apprenticeship in three years and not four years at the time. And I chose to take the entire four years to do the apprenticeship. And, you know, I, I chose to take things slowly and make sure I'd learned, you know, a broad uh, range of different skills and experiences before I was ready to you know, lead a team and, and even become a sous chef, which was, um, you know, not until I was 26 when I went to work as a prince. That's so interesting because, yeah, I do think, I think generally in, in society these days there is much more of a feeling that you need to be in a rush to get to whatever kind of pinnacle you put in front of yourself. I certainly see it in my kids, you know, like um, who are, you know, in high school and they're looking ahead to tertiary education and I guess courses are so expensive these days that, you know, it, you feel like everything's got to be vocational and purposeful and that you're on, you are, yeah, trying to climb that next rung of an imaginary ladder. But I think it's really interesting, you know, when I look at what you're doing at the Ganem Group, there's such a variety of restaurants and cuisines, you know, so there's like Cantonese or Sichuan with Donna Chang and there's Japanese with the Boom Boom Room with more of an izakaya kind of vibe. You've got Blackbird, which is a grill. Um, what have I forgotten? Biblos, which is a bit more Mediterranean, Middle Eastern. So, I mean, do you feel like having that really solid grounding set you up for a career where you could then oversee all kinds of different restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was a young chef, when I did travel to Europe, I kind of learned the basics about, you know, cooking and, you know, what, what heat does to certain ingredients and, you know, also working with great fish and meat and and that kind of hierarchy that you do get in London. But it wasn't until I sort of came back to Australia and, and worked um, firstly on Andrew McConnell at Circa where I kind of realised that you don't need to serve potatoes with everything and, you know, his <laughs> love for um, vegetables and, you know, lighter dishes and stuff that, you know, really it was kind of Melbourne-esque, I guess, um, you know, really sort of helped highlight my career. But then um, working with Paul Wilson, um, another great chef who's been a big influence of mine, he has so much knowledge when it comes to all those different diverse cultures. Um, you know, we learned when Circa became Pacific Rim, we did everything from, um, you know, Mexican and Korean and Japanese and, and everything. And so I guess the skill that I learned from him was that once you have your technical ability sort of down pat, um, it's possible to sort of branch out into different cuisines. And, um, you know, I guess mentoring 
young chefs and training people has been a big part of my success. I'm kind of very cautious or I'm very um, passionate about looking after young chefs and guiding them in the right direction. So if you have a team of people who enjoy working with you, um, it makes life a hell of a lot easier. So whilst, you know, a lot of these different sort of cuisines and things might um, stem from ideas I have, the team that I surround myself are really the ones who are able to help me execute it because, you know, you certainly can't be a one-man band in this industry and I'm very, very lucky to have a, you know, fantastic group of peers and, and mentors in, in the people that we've mentioned before and, and also my team who are, um, you know, are, are everything really to what we do. Mm. There are a lot of um, head chef positions going at the moment. I mean, there's positions at all, every level in kitchens at the moment. There's a lot of jobs, positions to be filled. And there are a lot of younger chefs that are being, I guess, seduced to take those those um, more senior roles um, at quite a young age. What do you think are some of the pitfalls of doing so? Well, I think that you do run the risk of sort of pricing yourself out of the market. So when you look to move to a new position and, you know, you're sort of 23, 24 years of age and you're looking for sixty-five dollars or $70,000, um, you might not have the skills really to back up that those sort of figures. So I think that my one piece of advice really for those people, again, is, do not climb ladders before you're ready. Make sure that you have your skills completely down pat. Um, and I, it's it doesn't really, it, it probably goes without saying, but if you be nice to people and you can surround yourself with, you know, great people in the industry and meet a lot of people, learn as much as you can off everybody. I mean, you know, everybody from the kitchen porter to a front of house person, learn from your own mum, learn from your friends, learn from um, books and things um, and sort of become that sort of wealth of knowledge. And, and hopefully, you know, when you sort of start to mature a bit as a chef, you'll find that instead of asking everybody all these questions, you're the one that everybody's asking the questions of. And um, <laughs> that's when you realise you've become a leader. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, you've got those various businesses across Brisbane plus uh, a couple in Melbourne, so Le Bon Ton and Biblos, Le Bon Ton in Collingwood and Biblos in South Bank. How, could you just talk about the recovery in Brisbane and in Melbourne? How, do you notice that some cuisines or styles of restaurants have recovered faster or perhaps some locations? Um, yeah, how, how is it all tracking? It's, um, it is interesting because... I guess if I can talk about Brisbane a little bit. So Blackbird is on Eagle Street Pier, so it's on the opposite side of the city as Donna Chang. Donna Chang's over on George Street, so um, it, it's not it's a hop, skip and a jump, really. But the Blackbird is kind of in the in the business triangle, so we have we would generally have quite a busy business lunch type crowd and you know families coming out and you know you kind of your 21st and of course we do all sorts of things like weddings and stuff downstairs in our function venue but Donna Chang you know caters for a very different demographic of crowd um we, we have you know smaller tables come out they come for live lobsters and noodles and lots of the dumplings and things like that so that one kind of recovered quite well because you know friends had 
come out to meet each other again and and that type of thing. We we did see at Blackbird, you know, families were kind of starting to, you know, celebrate those birthdays they missed out on and, and you know, maybe the Christmases that probably didn't go quite as planned. But, um, you know, the business side of things, you know, the, the business lunches um, took a little bit more to get, to get off the ground. Um, you know, it wasn't until people started returning back to the offices and things that, um, that that type of trade came back in, um, but all in all, those those businesses are doing quite well. I mean, as the square meter rule changes, it really does affect a business quite heavily. Um, to go from four square meters down, you know, to back to two square meters, really, you know, can add thirty percent onto your, your profit. And if it works in the opposite direction, it's a, it's a loss of thirty percent in business. So. In a restaurant like Blackbird that has a giant bar, if you lose, um, you know, thirty percent of your trade, it's really the the bones of, of what you're doing. So, mm-hmm. uh, in Melbourne, you know, they, I mean, God, I, I feel so <laughs> terrible for Melbourne. Those guys, you know, they battled through the um, the takeaway side of things for such a long time. Biblos, you know, was serving Lebanese food but they were serving it out of Le Bonton in Collingwood. So they did two different cuisines down there, um, you know, to try and sort of pay some bills and, and to keep afloat. And, you know, they sort of, they did that and they, they relaunched and, you know, it wasn't long before they were closed down again for the second, second time. Um, so, I mean, all in all, the business is going, it's, it's going pretty good. Like, um, yeah, we're pretty happy about how things have bounced back, and I think that it's um, people have certainly come back out to to celebrate and and also to spend money and possibly you know support the businesses that they love going to. So, you know that that's one good thing. I just hope that um, you know the damage isn't um, too widespread down there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I would imagine uh, that Collingwood is quite different to Southbank. I mean, Southbank does rely so much on city trade and lunches and after work, as well as, you know, tourists who are perhaps going to Crown and um, and visiting the city, whereas Le Pontine, I would imagine, is a bit more of a local crowd. Have you noticed that? I think that, you know, what you're saying is totally correct. The, the really good thing about Bib Loss on Southbank is... Um, it's, it's very well supported by the Lebanese community and the families love to to come back out. I mean, they do make one of the best hummuses in town. So, you know, that's sort of one of the first places they rush to when the, the restaurant doors start opening up. So, again, in um, Brisbane as well here at Portside, the Lebanese community and the people who, you know, love that traditional Lebanese-type food, um, they come back in droves. So... Yeah. It's it's one of the beauties about about that business and probably why it's been open for for how long it has been. That's that's interesting and and I'm completely obsessed with hummus, so I'm going to go and try it because that is very <laughs> exciting to know that there's a new hummus on the scene. Um, oh, yeah, so it is something we we really uh, felt so deeply during 2020. And of course, beyond that, you know, community connection is really what is going to get businesses to um, to make it through, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, if if you're not in the hospitality industry, or you know, even if you are, it's it's important to you know, you can't go to every single restaurant, you can't support everyone, but 
you know, the small things that you do, um, you know, can help out a business and it can just mean the world. I mean, I've seen some fantastic things where, you know, the kitchen or the, the waiters write a nice thing on a takeaway bag and, um, you know, obviously the customers have come back and lined up and, you know, supported those businesses through the, the tough times. And, you know, it, you have to remember that these businesses are, they're everyone's, they're our way of life. I mean, it's more than just a, a nine to five job to us. It's, you know, it, it's our passion and making people happy um, and giving people a good time is, is what we do. And, and when we lose that, um, you know, it, it probably digs a bit deeper than just having a, a regular business shut down. So, you know, we need to see people smiling. We need to see people happy. And um, uh, hopefully, you know, we can see more of that as the, restrictions sort of start to ease and this virus starts to head off. <laughs> yes, we're all going to be happy to wave it goodbye at least as, as much as we can. Yeah. Um, Jake, as we look forward to the rest of the year, which somehow it's already February, um, what what are the big issues on, on your mind and, and what, what are you looking forward to? What are you concerned about? Um, look, my main concern really is obviously, I mean, the producers are definitely on my mind. Um, I think that, you know, last year we um, definitely struggled, of course. You know, some of the restaurants closed for, for months and months and months. Some of us won't get through. But at the end of the day, a lot of these restaurants, of course, totally rely on small producers, um, you know, pig farmers, cattle farmers, fishermen and stuff, who, like, their only source of income is selling to these restaurants. So... Um, as our businesses reopened, I basically went through the menu and had a look to make sure, you know, if there was a, a you know, a pork producer as such or a fish supplier who was, you know, selling one or two ingredients and I made sure that those things were back on the menu quite quickly. Um, look, the other thing, I guess, is staffing. I mean, a lot of restaurants are reopening all at once, so it's a rat race out there trying to secure good staff. Um, and it's almost a bit of a game, really, because, you know, staff can sort of window shop around a little bit to see what's a good place to work and, you know, where they're going to get looked after the best. Um, I think that, you know, up here in Brisbane, we're kind of a bit of a close-knit community. We, you know, constantly make sure we're doing sort of reference checking and stuff with, with different staff and resumes and, um, you know, we don't fight each other. I mean, a lot, a lot of the times you know the, the staff are coming up and they're doing a trial at blackbird and they've already done a trial at a couple of other venues around the town and so um i just you know look if if, if a venue suits another staff member better than mine then i don't mind sending that staff member to that venue because at the end of the day i'm here to look after people's careers and you know their progression if i can't give them the absolute best or what i believe is going to be the right direction for their career, then try and send them to your neighbour or your mate or somewhere where you believe is going to improve the industry as a whole and not just um, your own particular business. So, um, yeah, I think, look, it's it's given us an opportunity to sort of, you know, check out our, our costings and, you know, maybe sharpen your pencils here and there, watch, watch your outgoings, um, but yeah, I think that we always need to be ready for another lockdown. If you know, I, I don't want to say that word, but you just we can't afford to, you know, not not only on a wastage 
sense of, of the food, but you know, mentally, um, we have to be prepared, whether it's whether it's now or in the future, um, to make sure we know how to keep our businesses afloat and we know how to burst back out of the gates when it's time to go. Mm. <laughs> You've obviously learnt many skills in your time, but a couple of years ago, you would never have thought that knowing how to go in and out of lockdowns would be one of them. Oh, it's um, I kind of had this theory that every two hours I was going to hear a new big bit of information. So, you know, it was, you know, at the very start when it was like, right, close all the businesses. It was like, oh no, what do we do now? And, you know, we're just two hours later, it was right, right now, right, takeaway menus for all this food. And so all of a sudden you're researching where you're going to get takeaway containers and this and that. And, you know, all of a sudden you're focused on more of the Deliveroo app and, the um you know and Uber Eats or something like that than you've ever been before. So yeah, the skill set certainly altered, I would say. Um, but yeah, I just hope we can get back to serving guests face to face and in a nice dining room with some music and some nice wine, really. Well, speaking of that, you're about to open a new place, so you must be uh, an optimistic person. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um, so we're going to take the food and beverage for a new hotel in the valley, up Fortitude Valley in Brisbane. So the first aspect of that is a, a French brasserie. So it'll be about 80 seats um, in, the, in the lobby of a hotel. Um, and so it actually opens on this Saturday. So I'm just trying to unpack all the plates and the, the RoboCoop and all that now. So we are a bit behind again, but... Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's strange because we we were so worried about businesses a few months ago, but then there is a lot of people that are still looking to, you know, open businesses and, and move forward um, with the industry. It, it bounces back quickly. Um, and I think that some, you know, groups or smart restaurateurs are still ready to, you know, continuing what we do best, which is... Um, opening restaurants and, and serving guests. So, yeah, looking forward to this one. Um, you know, just, I, I guess, you know, another thing to mention was um, we, we got a, a few good staff, really, that sort of moved out of Melbourne. They were sort of, I guess, a bit doom and gloom down there for a while. And um, so some staff fled up here and, and uh, we got some good guys in the team. and. Um, that sort of allowed us the opportunity to expand a little bit and and whatnot. So, yeah, it's sort of excited but also nervous a little bit for, for what's coming. And some people are, you know, I guess gluttons for punishment. And, yeah, we hope that there's a little bit less punish and, and more <laughs> um, good times ahead, really, for us. Well, Jake, can you um, just, like, you know, let those people that you've lured from Melbourne learn what they need to learn, do what they need to do and, you know, progress in their careers. But then would you mind just sending them back, please? Oh, of course. They, they <laughs> always come back. Don't worry about that. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck in um, unwrapping those plates and getting the new restaurant up and going. What's the name of it? Oh, that'll be released in a couple of weeks, I think. Ah, what? Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let, let us know first. But, yeah, all the best with it. It's really uh, fantastic to get your perspective as we look back and look forward here on Dirty Linen. Thanks so much, Jake. Awesome. Thanks, Danny. Bye. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. 
We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. It's, yeah, it's a really tricky one because, you know, from a government point of view, I can... (laughs) 